This morning, our scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 24, which is in fact the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. So this is a slightly adapted version that comes from the passage. So you may remain seated, and the words will be on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Abraham was old and said to his most trusted servant, Swear by the Lord that you will not take a wife for my son from the Canaanites, but will go to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, who took me from the land of my kindred, and who swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts, and he went to Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down by the well at the time when women go out to draw the water. And he said, O Lord, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one who you have appointed for Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, Rebekah came out with her water jar. The young woman was very attractive, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar. The servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me water to drink. She said, Drink, my lord, and she gave him a drink. When she had finished, she said, I will draw water for your camels also. So she emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring and two bracelets for her arms and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Nahor was Abraham's brother. She added, We have plenty of room. The man worshipped the Lord and said, The Lord has led me to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother, Laban. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets and heard the words of Rebekah, he went out to the man. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord, for I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. And he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore him a son when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall go to my clan and take a wife for my son 
And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. He then told them all about meeting Rebecca and said, Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered, This thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. And he also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us ask her. And they called Rebecca and said, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebecca and blessed her, saying, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebecca and her young women rode on the camels and followed the man. Now Isaac was dwelling in the Negeb, and he lifted up his eyes and saw there were camels coming. When Rebekah saw Isaac, she said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, will you open our eyes and our hearts to hear your word today? Will you calm distractions in our minds and in Ryan's? And may your word go forth um, in grace and in power today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning, church. It's good to, good to be here with you. Uh, man, I, I started looking at this passage this week, and I'm like, man, it's going to take 30 minutes to read this thing. But it's this, it's this beautiful story of, uh, of how Isaac and Rebecca meet and how the Lord just ordains the whole thing. Um, it's, it's the lo- as Megan said, it's the longest narrative in the book of Genesis. And I, and I started to ask myself the question, why in the world would Moses give so much detail to this part of the story in fact, far more detail than stories like the Tower of Babel, uh, meeting Melchizedek, um, you know, or time in the garden uh, with Adam and Eve before the fall. Much more detail to that. And I started asking myself the question, why do we have that much detail? And, uh, you know, because Isaac and Rebecca, we, we, we have more information about how they met than their actual marriage. There's, there's, they're relatively silent Patriarchs, And one of the things you notice in the book of Genesis is that it is narrative and it is story, but there's also allegory uh, in the book of Genesis. When you look at Galatians chapter 4, Paul notes that, you know, that, 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 that uh, Hagar's son, Ishmael, like, like he's, the, uh, he's, the, he's the son of, of works, and, and um, uh, Sarah and, and um, 
Yeah, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac is, is like the, the way of grace and faith. And so you see this allegory play out in the scriptures. And I think you see it play out in the way uh, that they meet and the, the entity of a covenantal union through marriage. And so that's kind of the angle that I'm taking today because I think it really is about the pursuit. Um, so this, this extra long narrative of scripture is intended to point us to the union between God's only son and how the Lord brings his bride to him. And the church is the bride of Christ. But before we dig in, let me just offer you a few principles, especially about how we read the Old Testament uh, together, just to remind you. The the first thing we need to know is this, is that the whole Bible is pointing us to Jesus. Uh, In Luke 24, uh, verse 27, the scriptures say this, when he was on the road to Emmaus with some disciples, uh, it says this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so Moses, that includes the book of Genesis, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all. In, uh, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So th- what it tells us is that the Bible is either pointing to Jesus, it is about Jesus, or it is pointing back to Jesus. Every scripture is about Jesus Christ. To the Pharisees, Jesus once declared, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. You're like, hold up, Jesus. What, like, what do you mean here? Here's what he goes to say. He says, it is that they bear witness about me. Uh, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. In other words, unless you see Jesus as king in the scriptures, you don't have eternal life. doesn't matter how much Bible you know. That's the dangerous thing about knowing the Bible, is that if it doesn't give you life through Christ, you don't have eternal life. Even, even Abraham's journey of the faith is about the gospel. This struck me in Galatians chapter 3 this week, uh, starting in verse 7. Uh, Paul writes this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Never read that before. Saying in, all, in, saying in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So how did Abraham have the gospel before Jesus came on the scene? How in the world did Abraham have the gospel? Because the life of faith is what Abraham came to demonstrate. That's how he had the gospel. Before Abraham is on the scene, all we have is a model of walking by sight. We have grace here and there, but we don't have a model of living by faith. Abraham came to demonstrate a model of what it looks like to walk by faith. And that's why we see how messed up he is and how much God still loves him. It's this amazing thing that we see, that he models a life of living by faith. And the gospel is really played out over 10 or 12 chapters from Genesis chapter 12, when God calls him out of the darkness, out of his sin, into a new life, right? And then we see him enter into covenant with him that'll, that'll be um, secured by innocent blood being shed, pointing to Jesus, that'll be um, administered to him through the covenant of circumcision, where God's grace becomes personal and the life of faith is a mark on his life. And then his faith will be tested by by, uh, offering up his son, by God asking him to do that, the same way that your faith is tested. And, And we see this over and over again in the scriptures. But the other thing we see about this passage today is that the way that, that, that God describes the relationship of the life of faith with us and him is in this, this metaphor, this, this picture, or you can even say an allegory of, of marriage, that that's how we as God's people relate 
to God, is in a covenantal union. The gospel is this beautiful news that God made us to be one with him forever, married to him, united with him, and close to him. Sin has disrupted our unity, right? When, when we invited Satan into our union, th- through our birth, basically, we're born sinners, and it led to this great divorce, this great separation. And the only thing that can retie the knot between us and our Father in heaven is the grace of Jesus. And so it doesn't matter if you're in here today and you're, you're, you're single and you've never been married or you never desire to be married or you're married or you're in a premarital stage. We are all married to Christ. And that's the thing that matters most about each and every one of us through Jesus. We're married to him if we're in Christ, that is. And so, um, you know, when you think about marriage, it's interesting because I think it seems to be the most significant thing about our lives, and I would say that it is. But I think sometimes we make our earthly pursuits of marriage the most significant thing about us. But Jesus says that when we get to heaven, that we're not going to be married anymore. And for some of us, that's a disappointment when we think about it. And it shows how little view we have about God's grace to us and our marriage to him. And so we're going to be delving into this today, but here's our big idea. The pursuit of the bride is the mission of Jesus and his church. The pursuit of the bride is the mission of Jesus and his church. So what's the church's mission? What is our mission? What has God put us here on this earth to do? It's to prepare the world for a wedding, to search out the bride, to share the good news of our engagement to Christ. The search for Isaac's bride is about the promise continuing in this physical sense and the procreation that would ensue from that. But it's not just about that. It's an allegory about the mission of God and his people in between the two marriages, right? In between the marriage of of, of Adam and Eve and once we came and sin came into the, the world and the marriage that we will eventually have to God in eternity, to Jesus in eternity. And so what I want to do now is I want to, I want to walk through Genesis 24. I'm not going to read through the whole thing because it's a narrative. It's a story just to show you what's happening. And then, then I want to share some, just some specific application points of how we live as those who are married to Christ, even in our own relational distinctives with one another. And then we'll wrap it up. So here's what we see going on in, in uh, Genesis 24. Abraham is old. I mean, like real old, all right? He's, he's, like, a, he's like 140 years old. Uh, and, and so they, they've been grieving the loss of Sarah for probably like a couple of years now. I mean, I'm, and we talked about this last week, but a lot of times we view grief as like, you know, it should be over in a week or two, and then we'll move on. It probably takes them about a couple of years. And then, then even at the end of Genesis 24, you see how, how, how um, Rebecca coming into Isaac's life somehow brings closure to the grieving season of his life. It's a long season for them both. And... Uh, and the one thing we see that Abraham has neglected to do, uh, which was a responsibility of the family at the time, was he's, he's neglected to find his son a wife to marry and to carry out the promise to us. And so in this day, um, as, it, as is custom in many Eastern communities, um, arranged marriage was the norm. Um, and so it, it's, it's where the community around a person would have an investment and a responsibility to, to help them find a mate and to get married and to live as a married family. And, and as odd as that seems to us today, there's a reason why arranged marriages have a far less divorce rate than the way that we do marriage in the West. 
Uh, and, and I think it's interesting because it's, if you think about it, it makes sense, though, because both parties, both families have an investment in the marriage. They both had a voice before the marriage. They both had a responsibility before the marriage. A lot of times what we do in the West is a couple gets married and we're like, good luck, right? And it's, and, and it's a wonder why we, we have uh, such a low view of marriage uh, and, and such a... a, a, a a brokenness in how we view marriage. And so Abraham's old, and you know, we, we see that that he really to keep the to keep the seed line pure, he he encourages and feels led to, to take a wife for Isaac back in their homeland. The problem is it's about 500 miles away. Now, last time I checked, when you're 140, it's a little hard to go 500 miles, right? That's a long trip. And so what he does is he, uh, he employs one of his most trusted servants. M- most commentators think that this was his main man, Eleazar. Uh, and, and so like, let's just assume that it's Eleazar. He goes on his behalf and, and he takes 10 camels with him to help really carry all of the supplies that they need, but also the gifts. He's walking in full faith that God is going to come through uh, on his promise. And then they do this this, I mean, I, I think it's kind of this weird handshake with the inner thigh thing. I, I'm recommending we don't bring that one back, all right? Uh, but anyway, I think, it, I think what it intends to communicate is just the nature of intimacy uh, and, uh, and, and the seriousness of the oath that he took uh, to find Isaac a maid. And you, you see, even with Eliezer the whole time, like he feels called to this. He, he feels, he feels uh, sent to go and find a mate. And it's, it's not only because he loves Abraham and Abraham has all this leverage on his life because he's a servant, but it's more about Eliezer and the Lord than anything else. And, Abraham, and Abraham's wishes have a role to play in that as well. And so he goes out on his, on his mission here and then he gets, he gets to the region where, where Abraham is from and, he, and, he, and he's at this well um, there. And, and it's interesting, we'll look in John 4 with Jesus at another well. Uh, very similar story, but he's at this well, and, and he's praying and seeking the Lord. The Lord has sent an angel before him to guide him, makes certain that this is the place he's supposed to be. And then he kind of makes one of these deals with God. He says, okay, God, I'm going to pray that you just bring a woman here, and then, and then here's how I'm going to know that she's the one. It's whenever I ask her for a drink, uh, and, and she gives me a drink, well, we're not going to stop there. She's also going to offer to give a drink to my camels, 10 camels, which those little humps on a camel, I've heard that those hold water, okay? So this is a lot of water. So as he finishes praying, Re- uh, Rebecca shows up on the scene. Uh, he asks her for a drink. She extends hospitality. Absolutely, I'll give you a drink. He finishes, oh, by the way, how about I get some water for the camels as well? El- Eleazar's like giddy inside, right? He's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened so quick. And so it probably takes, I don't know, two to four hours to get water for these camels, depending on how far they're away from the well. And Eleazar is just waiting there. She does that, that work. And then, um, and then he says, hey, can I, can I, which family do you come from? Can I meet them? And then uh, Laban, who is her brother, comes out uh, on the scene, and, and he notices immediately that this man means business, right? He has these camels. He has all of these wedding gifts. And uh, so Laban is, is probably commissioned by Bethuel, uh, their father, to help Rebekah find uh, a husband. And so then uh, uh, Eleazar goes back to their home, 
Um, they, they offer him to, st- to stay there, to have a meal. And then as they're around the table, he begins to recount the faithfulness and the leading of God around the dinner table. And as he begins to do this, he doesn't, he, he's a man on mission. He doesn't eat the food that's before him. He says, I've got to tell you what God has done. And he sh- it's, it's so long because he's recounting God's faithfulness, all from Abraham sending him to him praying to God providing and to how these men and this family now is a part of the covenantal promise being fulfilled in Isaac's life. And I, and I love what, what uh, verse 50 says in 51. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, This thing has come from the Lord. We can't speak to you bad or good. Like, like how can we argue with the Lord? It's so clear that this is God's plan and then he says, behold, Rebecca's for you. Take her and go. Like our, our obligation to her well-being and her flourishing as her family, as her, as her, as her father and her brother, we, we see God's plan on this. And then, and then the timeline gets uh, expedited, um, kind of against the mother's first thought, uh, because God's plan to obey uh, can't be delayed, because delayed obedience is disobedience. It sounds really quick to us that you, that you meet, one day passes, and then you send your your daughter away. That's how it worked with, with, with uh, God's plan in this, in this situation here. But we notice that there's a spiritual alignment to the mission God has for the world from Abraham and his servant Isaac and now Rebekah, that, that she must too also leave everything that she's ever known. And, and the test is that she has to leave, right? One, that Isaac, that Isaac cannot go back to the homeland and, and thus forsake the promised land. And that Rebecca has to be willing to come back and live with him. Because when God calls you, the first test of faith is, are you willing to leave everything and follow him? So it's this test of faith for them. The test to see if she's a believer or not. If she trusts in God's covenantal promises. And this covenantal union that's kind of portrayed for us here, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a union for us to enter into too. It's, it's about us. It's about Jesus. It's about the possibility of life forever in his presence. Because marriage on this earth points to marriage in eternity with Christ. And everyone that follows Jesus, like we said, is married. But here we have these relational callings this side of eternity as the bride of Christ. And as we wait for Jesus to return, some of us will be married, some of us are yet to be married, and some have a calling of singleness. And and here's the thing that I want to just, just declare to you. The church needs all three. The church needs all three. So I want to take this moment to draw out a few application points for how our marriage to Christ plays itself out in this world as the church. The first thing is this, is I want to give some wisdom uh, for the non-marital folks in our church and in our community. So maybe you've never been married, or maybe you've been married and never planned to be married again. Or you feel a call to remain single as, as Paul and Jesus were as they walked the streets of this earth. I want you to know this more than anything. You are a gift of God to us as the church. In many ways, you understand the nature of marriage more than any married person could ever understand it. Because it is you and Jesus. And you have the potential to live it out more faithfully than anyone. These earthly marriages are important, but they're not eternal. All of them point to Jesus, but people who are married have divided loyalties. In fact, Paul warned us about that. Uh, And sometimes those loyalties that we have to another person, they draw us closer to Jesus, 
But sometimes, you know what they do? They draw us away from Jesus. And so, but you have the opportunity to keep your eyes on Jesus. And I want you to know this. The church desperately needs you to live out your singleness as a calling. There's nothing wrong with you. Those of us who are married want to include you in our lives. We want to love you. We want to share life with you. But there are many times in our sinfulness and in our disgrace that we forget you, that we don't include you. And it's because we're sinful and we need your grace and we need your forgiveness because we want you to know this. You are so valuable to the kingdom of God and to the bride of Christ. If that's you, I want to give you encouragement today that we see you, that we love you, and that we want to share deeper life with you. The second thing is this, wisdom for the premarital. I started to realize as we planted this church early on that, that we prayed that this would be a church where single people and people that are in the premarital season of their lives could thrive. And then I realized this, I've never really preached on this before. Um, and I've never really given time to this before. So I want to give a little bit more of an extended take on that um, today. Uh, as your pastor, I want you to know this, uh, that more than anything, I want you to find the person that God has called you to marry. Uh, through our season, uh, Megan and I even helping, and Brandon and Alicia and others who have helped uh, couples uh, that are in the engagement season um, find out if they're a, a good fit together or not. We, we've seen people that have broken off their engagements and that are married to other people now and are thankful for that. We've seen people uh, who have gone through and gotten married and flourished in light of that. But we, would just, we just want you to know that, that we want to help you uh, as a church find the mate that God has called you to marry. I know that from personal experience that this, that this process is painful, that it's isolating, and it's disheartening at many times. And we as your church body want you to know that you don't have to shoulder this alone. Um, if this is the most pressing thing in your life right now, I want to encourage you uh, to declare that. It's not weird or strange to say this is important in my life right now. You don't have to hide that and go with that alone. Isaac was 40 when he got married. That would have been like being 60 in, in today's kind of the, the way that we age and the, the length of time that we live. But it was, when it was time for him to get married, it was time. And it was the most important thing uh, that they had to face. So just a, a few kind of sub points here. I'd say this, that finding a mate is a communal endeavor. Um, this is part of the Western brokenness that we have uh, as Americans. Uh, most of us are not depending on our parents to find our spouse. Some of you are like, amen. Man. Um, but, but here's the deal. There's great value in understanding that this shouldn't be an isolated endeavor. Our sinful world has surrounded the process of finding a mate to such a shaming and consumeristic process. Guys, we as God's people have the power to redeem that. We have the power to do that. You may meet someone you've decided to date through an online platform, and that's okay. That can be helpful. But bring this person among the people who know you and know you in the Lord. If marriage is ultimately about Jesus... And your life in Jesus is ultimately about living life in the context of a church. Why would you not invite your church family into that process? Now, I get it. It's weird. It doesn't work out. You, you bring someone else into the family, and, and, and you got to work through that. But friends, the Christians who know you most deeply are the best candidates to help you in the journey. Amen? But it's so embarrassing and shameful when it doesn't work out 
that we just stiff arm it and we go at it alone. It's never been God's plan for us to go at dating or courting alone. You know, that's the way it happened with me. I, 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 I had a broken relationship, decided I don't really ever want to date anybody ever again. And then my friend Ty was like, hey, you want to move to Las Vegas with me? He was discipling me at the time. And he said, uh, he said oh, by the way, and if you move out there, I, I, know this, I know this lady, Angie, and I know her, and, and you're probably going to get married to her if you move out there. I, I swear I was sitting at his kitchen, and, kitchen table in Taylorsville, Kentucky, and 14 years later, here we are. I mean, but, but I trusted him enough to say, you know, this guy, is, he's cared for my soul. Why would I not listen to him? Why would I not listen to him? So I, I, whatever that looks like for you, I want to invite you to invite the family of God into the process with you. Maybe that means that, that I don't know, more people in the church get married. I don't know. Maybe that means uh, that, that your, your discipleship group or emotional community is a part of that process. Or maybe there's an, there's an older, more seasoned uh, man or woman in the church that helps guide you along in the process. I don't know what that looks like for you, but I know that the community of God has to be involved in the process. And just, just kind of as a PS here, an addendum, uh, for parents, one of the things that Megan and I have kind of been putting on a drip in our kids' lives is that when that time comes in their life, that, that we might be a part of that process with them. Now, right now, they think that, you know, that the girls or boys have cooties, and that's fine. That's good right now. Uh, but when that day hits, one of the things we're praying for and kind of putting in a drip in our conversations is that mom and dad ought to be a part of that process with you, that we, we know you better than anyone else. We love you. We love you in the Lord, and we want to be a part of that. Um, call it arranged marriage or whatever, I don't know. Um, but we just want to be a part of the process with our kids. I might encourage you to pray for that same thing. Uh, the second thing is this, is that spirit, uh, uh, spiritual attraction is the only non-fatal attraction. So appearance and natural beauty are part of the premarital process. They were for, for, for um, um, uh, Isaac and Rebecca, I'm remembering all these names, Isaac and Rebecca, right? I mean, Eleazar saw that she was a woman that was beautiful, in appearance. Uh, personality is a part of that process too. But here's the deal. The only thing that will ultimately get more attractive over time is a person's walk with the Lord and growth in godly characteristics. No amount of Botox, liposuction, airbrushing, working out, running on the beach can save you from the gravitational pull of the fall. Amen? Nothing can save you from that. So why not focus more on the spiritual characteristics that actually make a marriage flourish? We can't look to the world to help us figure this out. The church, is the, we're the only people who get this. We're the only people who can look from this angle. The world says pursue relationships that can guarantee connection through attraction to these eventually deteriorating qualities. That's the world's message for you. And so the world monetizes this message through reality uh, TV shows and hookup apps. I'm not judging you, David and Patrick, for watching The Bachelor with your wife, or I'm not doing that, all right? But uh, you need to repent. Um, <laughs> if our attraction isn't first spiritual attraction, we'll find ourselves like more than half the marriages in our country. After the kids go off and they, they go to school, we'll say, you know, I just kind of fell out of love with you. And we'll get divorced for irreconcilable differences. We don't want to see that happen. And 
if, if our attraction isn't first a spiritual attraction, this is where we'll find ourselves. Now, in order to be spiritually attracted to someone, you've got to have a spiritually attractive life yourself. And so one of, my, one of the first things we've got to see is that our time with the Lord is what ultimately helps us find the person God's called us to marry. Your, your quiet time is far better time spent in finding a mate than, than, than searching a dating app. And I'm not, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to do, but if, if, if you want to have a spiritual attraction to someone, you have to grow in that yourself. And, 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 and be discipled and make disciples and grow in, in, in love for the Lord. And, and just, I want to encourage you to pray daily for this. If this is the season of life that you're in, that the finding a mate is kind of the next thing for you. You just really feel called to that. Because when you don't lose what's most important in your spouse, their spirituality and their walk with the Lord, guess what? You can afford to lose the other things that you are attracted to in them. You know, whether it's the disease that takes a body or appearance and the gravitational pull of the fall, whatever it is, when you don't lose what's most important, you can afford to lose the other things and be more attractive than ever to your spouse. Uh, the, last, the last group of people that I want to, uh, the last thing I want to say to those that are dating is, is to make edification the ultimate goal. Let's just say you're, you're dating someone and you're going, you're going out and spending time together. Uh, and I got this, um, I got this from a, a great little book, if you want to pick it up, called Finding Your Million Dollar Mate from our, our Sending Church's uh, founding pastor, uh, Randy Pope. Uh, in it, he shares his own journey in which he, he kind of resolved to make this uh, his goal in dating, is that he always made edification his ultimate goal. And that word edify means to give, right? It means, it means, um, it means that the purpose of the dating process, for him anyway, was preparing you and the person you're seeing uh, the opportunity to be further along in their faith through your relationship, no matter how it plays out. But only Christians can date like this. Only Christians are secure enough in their identity to not make dating about themselves. After all, dating is leading toward marriage, and marriage is about laying down your lives for the sake of the gospel and, and, and one another's mutual edification. But far too many dating relationships even among Christians, are focused on self. And so the couple either gets married and carries the shrapnel of selfish behavior into the marriage, or they leave the person they dated emotionally and physically depleted and damaged. May this not be so in the church. We've got the gospel, and the gospel gives us power to lay down our lives. And lastly, just marriage, wisdom for the marital. Friends, the, the true meaning of marriage only makes sense to followers of Jesus. One of the, the first, uh, actually the second couple I was asked to, to officiate their wedding, we got into it, and I realized that neither of them were believers. And for me, that was a conviction because I don't see how marriage works without the Holy Spirit in the middle of it. And they weren't only unbelievers, they were unequally yoked unbelievers. They had kind of different levels of unbelief. And I tried to help guide them and, and see that, but it didn't. It ended up with them thinking that I didn't like them, unfortunately. But um, we are the only people who can understand what marriage is all about. You have an opportunity, married folks, to declare in your marriage the beauty of Jesus' rescue mission to the world by how you relate to one another and how you live openly in the world uh, with your marriage. And so I want you to resist the urge to compare your marriage to others or to focus on qualities about one another that will eventually deteriorate over time. The more that you seek to edify one another and share the gift of your marriage with the world as you model the life of Jesus with us in real time, 
you're going to taste a little bit of eternity. You're going to taste a little bit about what it's going to be like uh, to be with Jesus forever. But the Spirit of God is the only thing that can hold your marriage together and make it flourish. Nothing else can. Not a new job, not more money, not more experiences, only the Spirit of God. If you're married in here, I want to encourage you to, to maybe spend some time this week with one another and ask yourself this question. What is the purpose of our marriage? What is the ultimate purpose of our marriage? And don't be afraid of what comes to mind at first. It might be to raise these kids, you know, to experience intimacy with one another. If those things are on there, put them on there. But what would it look like for you to recenter to the godly purpose of marriage, which is to lay down our lives for one another so that we can draw more closely to Jesus? Now, this, this passage of Scripture, I want to land the plane here from John chapter 4. There's another instance where Jesus encounters a single woman at a well. The difference in the encounter with this single woman in a well, she had been married before. Not only has she been married before, she'd been married and divorced five times and was with a man. But she was thirsty for a different way of living. I want to read to you just a few verses as we close here. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. It's the same thing Eleazar said. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? In other words, I thought I was unapproachable. I thought I was damaged goods. <clears throat> Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who will be Isaac's son, right? He gave us this well to drink from, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water. She said, I will not have to be thirsty or have to come out here to draw water again. Her first thought is what? If you can relieve me of this shame that I experience day in and day out, because I've been trying to find life in all the wrong relationships and all the wrong places, if you can just get me out from under this cloud, it would be the best news imaginable. Now, Jesus not only does that, but he gives her life in the life to come because of her faith. The two stories are so eerily similar that it seems that Jesus orchestrated John chapter 4 and took his disciples out of the way to Samaria to show the true meaning of Genesis 24. Instead of a beautiful, chaste woman, Jesus finds an adulterous, foreign, Canaanite woman there. The very woman... <laughs> the very type of woman that Isaac was forbidden to marry. And if we're honest, who does he find there? He finds us in John chapter 4. He doesn't find someone who's got it all together. He finds a mess of a woman, just like me and just like you. And just as God did everything to fulfill his promise to Abraham and his descendants in securing a bride for Isaac, he has done everything to save us. We are this Samaritan woman, church. So Jesus approaches this broken woman, and what's he do? He offers a proposal to her. 
One where she can trade in all of her brokenness and really experience life. Do you know why so much happens around wells in the Bible? So much happens around water in the Bible. One of our sacraments involves water today as the church. Because water indicates what? Life. Water indicates life. And so Jesus is sharing so many messages with this woman and with us around these wells in the scripture. His promise is to give us living water. In other words, life and eternal life and abundant life. Jesus dealt with this woman's divided loyalties and her false ways of of living, and she came away as truly transformed and changed. And this is Jesus' proposal to you. She came away to such a degree of freedom that she was actually able to declare what she had been concealing her entire life. She was able to declare all of the shame and all of the brokenness that had defined her and kept her drinking hot water in the middle of the day. That's the kind of freedom that the gospel gives to us, church. This kind of freedom that it doesn't matter what other people think of our lives when we're redeemed and, and, and married to Christ. And this is the offer for us today. This beautiful story shows us that both the geographically distant, in other words, those who have never known God and don't belong to him, you didn't come from that kind of a family, and the morally distant, those who have never lived a life to please God with their behavior, are welcome in God's family, can approach God. And why? Because he's the one that's been coming to us all along, church. This story shows us that he doesn't just bring in, put together, and seemingly pure people into his family, like Rebecca, but he comes and he brings in defiled, ashamed, and outcasted people like this woman at the well. Do you know the heart of God to rescue lost people? And is that the definition of how you live your life in his kingdom? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture in Genesis 24 about how the promise of a life of faith would come to us, Lord. We're thankful that that Isaac and Rebecca met. Um, We're thankful that their life was also broken, too. Rebecca was pure, and her life was great. Isaac's life was great, and they still were dirty, rotten sinners who messed it up big time. But that's not the point of their life. That's not the point of their marriage. The point of their marriage is that it depends on faith. Father, the point of our relationships in this world is that they depend on faith. Father, because the relationship that they're all pointing to is the one that depends on faith. So, Father, I pray that we would see ourselves like this woman at the well, this shameful, disgraced, and broken woman. Maybe it's things that we've actually done in life. Or maybe it's thoughts that never made their way to our hands, but they're playing in real time in our mind. God, release us from the prison of shame through living the life of faith today. That's what you have for us, Jesus. And that's eventually what will happen with our stories is our faith will become sight. We'll be seated around the table, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we'll no longer have to guess if you love us, if you're with us, do you know us? Your presence will be enough. We long for that day together. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.
So as we live between the two marriages, between the garden and the city of God, we come around a little marriage feast every single week. And it's about Christ's broken body and Christ's shed blood, the thing that hold a covenantal union together. That's what it is. And so for, for you in this room today, this, this table only makes sense through Christ. This table only makes sense if you've got the Holy Spirit. In fact, the scriptures say that if you, if you eat the bread or you drink the cup in an unworthy manner, that you, you actually bring judgment on your life. We don't want that for you. And so if you're in a place today where you're walking in willful rebellious sin, don't take this table today. Cling to Jesus. Get your life recentered on him. Ask someone to pray for you. Walk in the light as he's in the light. If you're in here today and you know that you are that woman at the well, your heart's ready to receive this, this table because your heart is ready to confess all of those things to him and receive life in his name. So what we're going to do now is we're going to come and receive these elements. And uh, we're going to return to our seats and we're going to take the meal as a family together. So come and taste and see that he's good, church. life of your son Jesus because he's the only one that holds our lives together Father we confess openly Lord that we are that broken Samaritan woman drinking hot water in the middle of the day because life didn't work when we tried to make it work we want to give you that pursuit of life and we want to take hold of the everlasting life that you've given us in Jesus so Jesus we ask that you'd recenter our hearts today as we pursue that. Church, on the night that our Lord was betrayed, he, he took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said to his disciples, this is my body given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Take and eat, church. Likewise, after the meal, Jesus lifted the cup, and he said to his disciples, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. Take and drink, church. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. We thank you that nothing is hidden in his sight. Nothing is hidden in your sight, Father. 
And so, Lord, help us to walk a life of open obedience before you this week. And we thank you for the grace to live in through Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.